Well, good morning, church. I'm very glad to be back here um, teaching with you this morning. Um, I've been very blessed to be able to do those uh, daily devotions every couple of weeks that we're posting online and to continue to lead life group and to finally get back to the Bible study downtown this, this month. But um, it's different being here with you guys. It's good. It's especially different being outside because inside the, the stage is a little bit elevated out here. It kind of slopes down. So if I, uh, if I stumble today, just recognize that I'm preaching uphill and uh, take that how you will. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that we're able to gather this morning to hear your word. Father, I pray that you would speak loudly and clearly to us, that you'd shut me up, Lord, and that you would do the work and the talking, Father. We thank you that you have brought this message to us after a couple of thousand years, Lord, in different languages, so that we could hear it this morning, listen to your great and pure word, God, and to learn something from it so that we can grow and learn how better to glorify you throughout our lives. We love you, Lord. We appreciate you. We praise your name. Amen. Uh, turn with me, please, to First uh, John chapter 1. And, and while you do that, I'll explain. Um, Pastor Matt obviously just finished teaching through the Gospel of John last Sunday, so I thought it was appropriate to spend a little bit of time in one of his letters. And there's, there's a lot of similarities between the two, between his letters and his Gospel. You have uh, the themes of um, the unity of believers and the, uh, the preponderance of, of evidence about Christ's existence and the, the, the simple and profound foundational gospel and the joy of knowing Jesus. And we'll see some of these things as we talk through this this morning, this first chapter. Um, we're going to see parallels in the words that he uses starting right with verse 1 of First John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He starts us off saying what was from the beginning. And it's the exact same way that he starts his gospel, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and so on. Before anything, there was God, and there was the Word, and the Word made everything, and through Christ all things were made. And in him was life, and that life was manifested to us. It became, it became experiential. And that's, that's a really important thing that John is trying to get across here, is that it's very important to note that God, God was made manifest. He's driving this home both at the start of his gospel and at the start of this letter here. And it can seem really obvious to us because, of course, we know Jesus existed. There's so much evidence and proof for that. Uh, we know he was a real, a real existing uh, God. Um, but if we can take a moment and try to imagine what it was like to hear that a couple thousand years ago, their experience would have been very different because the way that God had been um, both displayed and talked about up to that time was, was much more intense, was, was very intimidating. In Exodus 33, Moses, he begs God to let him see God's glory. And, and God tells him that no one can see his face and survive. And in the next chapter, even, even the residual glory that Moses has after talking with God, even that residual glow on Moses' face when he comes back down the mountain uh, in chapter 34, he has to cover his face up um, so that people aren't scared of it. So you guys are all dressed like Moses today. Congratulations. <clears throat> his, the, the point is his face, his presence is so is so bright, is so profound that it would kill you to look at it. 
One of my favorite places to look at the difference between us and God is in uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, where the Israelites, they're taking the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and, and it's on an ox cart, and, and the oxen stumble, they, they trip. And a guy named Uzzah, he reaches out his hand right, to stop the Ark from falling down, which makes perfect sense. This thing is precious. It's, it's a, a beautiful and incredible and important piece of their uh, history. It's where God is, is sort of there with them, and he, he doesn't want that thing to hit the ground because the ground's dirty. And if, if you grew up in farm country like I did, you know that the stuff that comes out from behind animals pulling things, you don't want stuff falling into. And so he reaches his hand out to stop it from, from sliding. And God's response is to, is to burn in anger and to kill him right there. He's, he just drops dead. Because what Uzzah hadn't realized is that, you know, the ground was not the dirtiest thing that could touch the ark, that, that it was actually him. It was a person, somebody fallen, somebody separated from God who, who could, if he touched the ark, he was too dirty to be in God's presence. And so we, we continue to see this idea of God, God's glory is too bright to look at. It would kill you. Even the ark of his presence is too glorious to touch. It would kill you. In Exodus 19, Moses is getting ready to, um, to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And he, he's on, this is at Mount Sinai. And, and he's, he's instructed to set up a blockade, basically, um, to make sure that nobody approaches the mountain when God comes down on, on to speak to, uh, to Moses. Because if they did, it says in verse 12, it says, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. So don't touch the mountain. So seeing the face of God would kill you, touching the ark would, would kill you, even touching the base of a mountain where God is would, would kill you. And then in verse 18 of that same chapter in Exodus, it says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down and warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. So God's glory, seeing his face, even touching the ark, being, even touching the base of a mountain that God's at the top of, is too much. It would, it would kill you. He swallows up a mountain in smoke and fire and, and earthquakes, and he speaks in thunder. Because we are too sinful and God is too pure for us to occupy the same space, for us to interact like two normal people do. It, it's like oil and water, except if the water were to light the oil on fire and burn it up completely. Um, but that's our God, church. That's, that's our God. He's so perfect and so holy, and we are so, we're so not that, that to be around him would render us dead men. That's our God. That's how different we are, how set apart he is. And there's a point to all this. The point to all this is that it, it, it matters that God was made manifest to us in the way that John describes. It, it matters that John and many, many, many other people were able to see and to hear and to touch him. It, it matters because it's so, it's so utterly profound a thing for God to do. This, this unapproachable God whose mere presence would turn you to dust for him to make himself presentable to man. That he would condescend to be fully human as well as fully God. It's, it's a complete shift in thinking. Just like it's a shift in thinking for us to, to understand that, that it's not acting good that allows us to, to go spend eternity in heaven, but it's our, it's our, our new, saved, heaven-bound nature 
that helps us to act good. And this would have been shocking to those people hearing it when John wrote it. They were, they were used to the concept that, that God was unapproachable, that to come in contact with him in any way would kill you. But, but God made manifest to us as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully man and fully God, could be listened to. He could be seen and he could be looked upon and touched and you could eat meals with him and you could sleep near him alongside the road on your way to another town to preach the gospel. And he did. John did. He did these things. And not just John, but many, many others. So if you look at those first few verses in 1 John 1, he says, he says, we heard, we have seen, we have looked, our hands, we have seen, manifested to us, we have seen, we proclaim, fellowship with us, our fellowship, we write, our joy, and not once does he say I. Not one time does he say, take my word for it, trust me. He says, we did these things. We saw these things. We experienced these things. So many people experienced these things and would back up John's claims. And that matters that there were many witnesses because it gives substance to it. Because God would only do that, would only become approachable and allow himself to be experienced by so many people if he had a really, really good reason. Which John explains in verse 4. That our joy may be made complete. John says that, that we're writing these things, these clear references to Jesus' actual existence, so that our joy may be made complete, not partial. See, we have to know this stuff in order that our joy may be made complete, in order that we could have truth and fellowship with that truth and the originator of that truth. The past few days, I've been teaching my kids card tricks, like really simple ones, because that's all I can do. Um, very simple stuff. And they, and they watch it. And even though it's simple, they're just, they're just completely baffled. They just don't have a clue, um, which is exciting for me. I feel very good about myself when I do that. Uh, but always afterward, they'll ask me, they say, oh, I want to do a trick, Dad. I want to do a trick. Let me try one. Um, you know, and, and one of the kids will take the deck and they'll, they'll kind of clumsily fan it out and say, you know, take a card. So I'll take one and look at it and put it back. And then, you know, they kind of shuffle um, by basically dropping all the cards on the floor. Um, and then they'll just kind of start pulling cards out at random. Is this your card? Is this your card? You know, and it's like, no, that's, that's not my card. You don't know what you're doing, right? Sometimes they, they get really dramatic about it with their flair. They'll spin around and stuff. But it's, it's funny to watch them to act without any understanding. But my son, he's eight. He's big enough to be able to manipulate the cards a little bit um, and, and to understand what's going on. And so I, I sat him down and I and explained to him how one of the tricks works. You know, I taught him the math behind it and I taught him how to maintain the card position, just the, the basic little things and how to banter a little bit. Um, so I explained it to him a couple times and we worked through it and practiced. And, and then he went and showed it to his sisters and it totally worked. And it was, it was amazing. I was so proud of him. And he was so happy. And he and I, we had joy in that shared experience that we had. And then I came back into the room a few minutes later and he's teaching his sisters. Which I hadn't expected at all. And, and there's just cards everywhere. I mean, just all over the floor. Um, <laughs> but, but eventually, after a lot of work and a lot of questions... One of the twins came in and she, she could do it. And I was totally shocked. I, I did not think that was possible. But, but see, what had happened was that I knew something. And I, and I showed it off and I confused people. And, but then I explained what I knew. And I and, and explained the reasons that it was the way it was. And how to do it. And what to do with that information. And, and suddenly there was a lot of joy, both for my son and for me. 
And then, and then he took that information, that knowledge, that experience, what he had seen and heard and looked upon and touched, and he shared that with someone else. And they learned, and then they had joy, and we all had joy together, all of us. And so when we have fellowship with the truth, our joy is made complete. It's communal. That's what John is saying and doing here in this passage. He's excited about sharing this truth that he knows. He says in verse 3 that we are proclaiming this to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So you can be part of this. So, so that there will be a togetherness with us. And indeed, he says, our fellowship, our togetherness, our family, is with the Father. The, the unapproachable, you know, glorious face will kill you, voice like thunder, shaking mountains, God. That's who our fellowship is with. The one that we could never have interpersonal fellowship with before. That's who we get to have fellowship with now. And that's why we're sharing this with you, John writes. So we can have fellowship together with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So just imagine the, the joy that that is. To have fellowship with, with the God who appeared in fiery clouds and sounded like thunder and parted seas. Imagine hearing John say, let me tell you about Jesus so that we can both have fellowship with that God. Imagine being able to know that God and the joy that comes with this. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus wants that for us. He says so in John's Gospel, in chapter 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Jesus wants us to have that fullness of joy. And how we get it is the context for that verse. He says, abide in me, over and over and over again. Matt did a great sermon on this a couple of months ago. Go back and listen to it, John 15. But in verse 9 there, he says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. He says, The same fellowship I have with the Father, I have with you. Abide in that. In verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Have the same kind of relationship toward me, Jesus says, as I have with the Father, always abiding and always keeping his commandments. In verse 11, we read, It says, These things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be full. And then in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And of course, we all, we all know where that love leads Jesus, right? To the cross. But he's very clear about the kind of love we're supposed to have for one another when we're in fellowship with each other. The kind that is willing to sacrifice itself for those others. That's the kind of fellowship we are supposed to have with each other, church. So when John writes in, in, in 1 John chapter 1 that the purpose of writing is so that you may have fellowship with us, that's what he's talking about. That's what he means. That kind of love and fellowship. That this letter is so that we can have that kind of sacrificial and loving and obedient fellowship with God together. Because Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. We're a pack. And faith in Christ, that, that obedience and following and fellowship with him, is a communal journey together. That is how God designed it. That's how Jesus modeled it, and that's how John describes it. We're in this together, and that's what makes our joy full. You, you make my joy full, church, when I get to spend time with you and be in fellowship with you. You make each other's joy full. And as soon as I'm done talking and we get to go back in the air conditioning, I will have made your joy full this morning. Because um, in about 10 minutes, I'm going to start cooking out here. But true joy, right? Joy comes from that fellowship with other believers and with God through Christ. 
<clears throat> John says, this is how we make our joyful, that Jesus wanted us to have, is the fellowship among saved brothers and sisters. He says, that's why we're writing to you. And in verse 5 here in 1 John 1, he explains again what it is that, that he's explaining. He boils it down in one verse. He says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that's really, if you're going to sum up the life and teaching of Jesus, it kind of starts right there. God is light. No darkness. And everything kind of stems from that, that God is light. Not that he's light-like or, or light most of the time or mostly light or that uh, when things are going well, he's light or when you can see him, he's light, but that he is light. He is constantly, always light. Nothing, nothing makes him light. You know, in the morning before my first cup of coffee, I'm very much not light and it makes me very slightly lighter, right? But nothing makes God lighter. He is light because there's no darkness in him. And, and so the life that Jesus lived was completely without darkness at all. And that means that we get to conclude a couple of things from that logically. It means that it was never dark or wrong when he did any of the things that he did. And that includes things like, like turning over the tables in the temple or not responding to Pilate when he asked him questions or, or scolding Peter or staying behind at the temple when he's 12 or whatever. <clears throat> because everything that he says and does and is, is light. Everything that John refers to having seen and heard and looked upon and touched and borne witness to is light. So everything that he shares with us about that experience is light. So our joy may be full. Everything upon which our fellowship is based is light. So to be part of that relationship with him, that fellowship, we can't walk in darkness. So in verses 6 through 10, we'll, we'll see what that means. 1 John 1 verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In him is no darkness at all. So as verse 6 says, if we, if we say that we have fellowship, if we say that we have the kind of fellowship that is based on a shared and mutual embrace of the truth of who God is and the fact that he is totally light and the life that he lived out to show that, if we say we have that kind of fellowship, but we're walking in darkness, we are liars. We are lying. Because if we do truly know God, we won't walk in darkness. It's very simple. It doesn't mean we won't sin, and we'll get to that in a moment. But if we know God, if we have surrendered to Christ's authority and salvation and given up ourselves and, and picked up our crosses to follow him, then we won't walk in the darkness. It means that our lives are going to reflect a course of light instead of a course of darkness. And that word that John uses when he says walk is a very, it's a very interesting word. It's a key word because it's not stand. It's walk. Peripateo, to move about or to live or to conduct one's life. He says if we, if we walk in the darkness, if we, if we move about, if we live or conduct our lives in darkness, we lie about having fellowship with Jesus. 
But if we conduct our lives in, in light and we, we, we practice that, we walk that, we conduct our life that way, modeling his, then we're practicing the truth and we get to share and embrace in that fellowship with each other. And practicing is very, very hard. It's very hard. I had a coach in high school who told me that practice was supposed to be hard so the games would be easy. The games were never easy. Uh, <laughs> but maybe they were a little bit easier. I can remember several times in high school, you know, vomiting from all the running in football and basketball practice. Um, the first time that I had heat exhaustion was in football practice in high school, which is why I'm really wary about where the sun is right now. Um, and these days, the things that I'm practicing are, are, are more inward, as I'm sure for many of you they are. Things like diligence and focus and, and responding kindly to my kids when they disobey. It's still very hard. In fact, it's probably harder, actually. I don't vomit as much, but <laughs> it's certainly harder. Practice is hard, but it's also necessary. Not, not because it makes us perfect, because practice doesn't make perfect. That's a ridiculous saying. But because it makes us better. Practice doesn't make perfect. It makes better. And, and as we're in, we're in constant motion, we are, we are constantly walking and conducting our lives. We, we have an option to get better. We're going to get better at the things we practice. And we have an option of, of practicing godlessness and, and sin and impatience and, and frustration and selfishness. And we'll get very good at those things. We'll get real good at those things. Or we, we choose to have fellowship with Christ and we, we practice things like, like patience and compassion and grace and forgiveness. And we'll get better at those things. Because practice makes us better. And John emphasizes here the need to practice. In verse 7 he says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We walk in the light by understanding everything that John was talking about in the first few verses of this letter, by knowing what was seen and heard and, and touched and looked upon and done. We understand those things. We have fellowship with each other because of that truth, and we begin to emulate those things. We practice those things. We walk in the light. We make our way in the light. We conduct ourselves in light. But we're not perfect because we're, we're, we're in motion as we're sanctified. We're not sinless, but we conduct ourselves in the light, always walking that way. And, and in doing so, we're exposed before God and before our brothers and sisters in Christ, which also means that we're accountable to each other. And that makes it very hard to lie, which it should be. It should be hard to lie. Verses 8 and 9 say, If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Because of course we have sin. Genesis 6.12, 1 Kings 8.46, Ecclesiastes 7.20, a whole bunch of Psalms and, and many, many other places make it abundantly clear that every man sins. We have sinned because we are still walking. We're still practicing. <clears throat> We're still going to have problems. But that only emphasizes the importance of having fellowship with each other and with God. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there are a couple of very interesting things in those, in those two verses. One is to note in verse 8 how John, he, he says that we are deceiving ourselves if we have no sin. Just ourselves. 
We are not deceiving the world around us when we say we have no sin. We're not deceiving each other when we say that. And we're not deceiving God when we say that. In fact, the only person we're going to fool when we say we have no sin is the most foolish person we know. It's ourselves. And, and really, we're not even going to do that. John 16, 13 says the Holy Spirit, who resides in us as born-again believers, he, he guides us to all truth. So if we're truly saved, we won't be able to fool ourselves into thinking we have no sin. <clears throat> Which inversely means that if we can convince ourselves we have no sin, then we don't have the Spirit in us and we're not really saved. A saved person recognizes and repents of his sin. <clears throat> Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, but as a believer, it, it really ought to be translated as when we confess our sins. Because a believer will be guided by the Spirit to a knowledge of the truth and where he's departed from that truth and, and will repent of those things. And God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. He's faithful and some of your translations, and I like this better, say he's faithful and just to forgive us. And I love that image, that idea that it is justice for him to forgive us. It sounds totally wrong because we're all sinners, right? How can it be just for sinners to be forgiven when we have violated a, a, a God's will, a God whose face and presence and, 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 and existence would, would destroy us if we were near it? But that's the thing, right? Is that Jesus has already made the sacrifice. He's already made the atonement on the cross for us. His blood has already been shed, and that's why it's just. That's the great glory of grace. Is that Jesus paid for our sins, past, present, future. He paid for my sins, and if his blood shed for my sin, but wasn't able to cleanse me, that would be monumentally unjust to him. So of course it is just for him to forgive us our sins when we come to him in repentance. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we can, we can choose to deceive ourselves and only ourselves by trying to convince us that we're sinless or we can, we can come to him and, and actually be cleansed from all unrighteousness. There's an important distinction to be made here. And it's what Andrew mentioned earlier this morning when he was talking to us in between songs is that God saves us from sin, not circumstance. God saves us from sin, not circumstance. What I mean by that is, that is that he forgives us our sin. He pulls us out of those lives, out of that walk, out of that manner of living, out of that conduct of life. 1 Timothy 1, Galatians 4, John 12, Luke 19. Come and chat with me afterwards about those. I'll be happy to share them with you. But he redeems us fully and totally from our depravity, from our sinfulness, so that we can have fellowship with him and walk in the light. He saves us from our sinfulness. He saves us from sin, not circumstance. God's salvation is not the equivalent of a box of band-aids that you, that you apply whenever you get a cut or a scrape or fall down. It's a new self. God's salvation makes us wholly new. To, to think that salvation is a salve to be applied when it's needed is a form of blasphemy because the truth is that it is always needed. I do want to clarify that yes, God does deliver us from circumstances also, not instead of, but also. The word is full of examples, and, and so are our, our, our lives. I mean, how many of us know about prayer for healing for a physical condition or a, an interpersonal relationship or finances or whatever it is that God delivered us from? He absolutely delivers people from circumstances. Exodus 32, when, when God is ready to destroy the Israelites because they've made this golden calf and worshipped it, Moses prays and, and asks God to relinquish that anger, and he does. 
God delivers the, the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery. He, he delivers Paul and others from prison. He, he saves lepers and demoniacs and, and many, many, many others. That kind of thing happens all the time. That God saves us from particular circumstances. And it's not wrong to ask him to do so if we're fully engaged in his will. But our fallenness does not require a circumstantial God. Our depravity before we are saved needs more than a circumstantial God. If it didn't, the Pharisees would have been a lot better off living by the book and and knowing all the the right rituals to do and the sacrifices to make and the prayers to say. But how does Jesus always address them? Talks about their heart. Because we need to be made new and not just different. And as John writes here in 1 John, when we walk in the light as he is in the light and we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that unrighteousness that lurks within us because we are prone to walk in darkness, to practice a life full of sin. Christ wipes out that unrighteousness and we are changed. All true believers know the truth that John's trying to get across. All true believers confess their sins. And true believers have fellowship with each other and with God. Verse 10 says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We don't want to make him a liar. I don't think. We want to walk to, to conduct our lives to practice in the light. And so having, having looked at all of this, what are we supposed to do with it? What is the best way not to make him a liar? To live like we're actually changed. I think it's simple. We follow the example set before us. Christ lived a sinless life. John shared to us all about that. And when what he did, and the other apostles did, and the other disciples did, is they shared that too. So we, we share. Jesus wants us to share in his, in his joy, his full joy. And we ought to want others to experience that as well. And the problem is it can get really tricky when our perspective gets off, when we, when, when we turn our focus a little bit too far inward and think about what we already have and away from sharing that joy outward. We know that many, many others need the gospel. We see the chaos of unbelief all throughout the world. We see the, the trail of destruction that it's left. And, and we know that sinful behavior is a result of sinful hearts, hearts that don't know God. We know that there's something lacking. We even know what it is, don't we, church? But, but the great pain in my heart is that, you know, it's not a lack of us knowing what the issue is, but a hesitation in doing anything about it. I'm often looking at myself shamefully in that regard. See, we, we can't get caught up in, in, in knowing that others need the gospel. But we, be, we should be caught up in, in, in reaching others with the gospel because to say that the solution to the world's problems is, is Christ is empty without action behind it. To say that that house is on fire and someone should do something about it. Well, yeah. That someone's me and you and all of us. The whole body of believers that John's talking to in this letter. The problem won't be fixed by us knowing about it. Now, we, we share so that people will know the full truth. We share what was seen, what was heard and touched and looked upon and experienced. 
the truth that changes people, that John hammers home at the start of both his gospel and this letter. We share that. And when I say share, I don't mean weaponize. We don't share it in order to make others feel bad. We don't gloat about our fellowship with the Lord. We don't share it for the purpose of proving ourselves right, but to help others see righteousness. We don't share it for, for cultural points or political gain, or, or we don't share it to make ourselves feel better. We follow John's lead, the example he lays out here. There's a reason this is scripture, and the things that I write aren't. We follow John's lead. We share these things so that the joy of fellowship may be full. The church is not full yet, church. There are many others who need to join the church so that the fellowship will be full. The joy will be full. So we share Christ for joy and not for shame, for the joy of others and for ourselves and, and for the joy of the extended body of believers and for the joy of heaven. There'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, 7. My kids, when they figured out how to do that car trick, Miles didn't keep that to himself. He shared that so that they would have joy. He saw it could bring them joy and he shared it until they got it. We don't share the gospel truth for the sake of proving how much better than the world we are. We share the gospel truth for the sake of proving how much better than the world he is. And so that we can, all of us, understand how fallen we are and how much we deserve to be disintegrated at the sight of God and how much we need him. It's about Christ who was from the beginning, who was heard and seen and looked at and touched. Christ who was God manifested to us. What an incredible thing. And it's so simple. We just do what Jesus showed us and then what the apostles continued. We share the truth and we explain what was seen and heard and looked upon and touched, what was manifested and how God is light and in him is no darkness. It's so simple and yet we so often want to overcomplicate it by shoving ourselves in the middle of it where we don't belong. Now I mentioned Luke 15 earlier that there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. A few verses after that is the story of, of the prodigal son and as I finish this morning, I just want to peek at that just for a moment. Um, you guys know the story, but it's in Luke 15 if you want to follow along. Luke 15, starting in verse 11, it says, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, that's such a key turning point in this story, isn't it? When he came to his senses in verse 17, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, 
Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is a great story. It's especially a great story as a parent because it serves as both a, a warning and a promise. Right? The warning is that you, you shouldn't squander what you have and be irresponsible and go off and waste everything because you'll end up eating pig food. And the, the promise is that even if you do that and you come back to me, I will still love you. And we, we hear the story and we think, yes, it, it's amazing because we, we have all come crawling back to God. We've all had that realization. We've all um, come to our senses as it says there in verse 17. Wretched and poor and ashamed and come crawling back and he has welcomed us into fellowship with him. And we think that that's what it's about, that it's about us and about our redemption and his mercy. And it is. But that's not the only way that it's about us. I think the most important part of this story is, is the other brother. And he, you know, he often gets left out of, of retellings of this. You see him there in verse 25 of Luke 15. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. So his brother finds out that his little bro has come back from wasting all that time and money, and he is ticked off. He is ticked off because he feels like he deserves that party, right? Not the brother. He's ticked off because his brother did nothing right, and he'd done everything right. His little brother had wasted everything while he had worked hard and made himself successful. He'd earned what he had, and his little brother hadn't earned a thing. And then here's dad making a big fuss over that loser little brother of his, and he is ticked off. He's so, he's so mad that he's blind to the blessings that he's been receiving for years. For years, his father has been taking care of him, has had a place for him, for him has fed and housed him and loved him. And Big Brother is so mad about his sibling that, that he's chosen to ignore those countless blessings just, just so he can be indignant about one cow. He's willing to ignore all the joys and the graces he's received for the sake of being mad towards someone else. Someone who has realized the error of his ways and, and returned to his father in complete humility. The younger brother has repented. He has turned around in the fullest sense of that word toward his father. He has understood his fallenness. How separate he is from, from where God is. And, and he has returned, not even to ask the same place that he had before, or an equal place with his brother, but just to ask to be a slave. And as I have been thinking and praying about this over the last few days, church, I have been just 
gut punched and, and wondering how often am I like that big brother? So content with, with being in the household already that we can forget about all that God has done for us when someone that we don't feel is worthy comes knocking at the door. How often are we comfortable just being in the house of the Lord and someone comes up to inquire about coming in and, and we act like a deadbolt locking the door shut instead of a doorstop propping it open? How often are we more concerned with how fallen the world is acting than, than in how we should act to reach fallen people in the world? And how often are we more concerned with sin than with grace? And I, and I don't say that as a rebuke, church. Pastor Matt will rebuke us if we need it. <laughs> I say that to exhort us to be excited about the joy that we have in Christ, the full joy that all believers should experience because they're in fellowship. And how many opportunities there are all around us to share the joy, to share what John is talking about as he introduces this letter, sharing the truth about who was from the beginning, who God made manifest, who was heard and seen and looked upon and touched. How many opportunities there are for us to love others into the kingdom by sharing that truth and then trusting in God to do the rest of the work. And so I would encourage us this morning, church, not to be a deadbolt, but to prop open the door of our house so that anyone who has found the narrow way can come inside. And, and that we would go out into the roadways and all over and walk in the light. That we would conduct ourselves in the light and declare to others the truth that John's talking about. So that our joy, mine and yours, and that of the global church body and those in heaven, that our collective joy would be made complete. God is good. And the world should hear it from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good in the fullest, utmost, perfect sense of that word. And that we simply do not compare. And yet, Father, you, you deigned to make yourself man so that we would be able to see and to hear and to touch, to live alongside you to follow you, to prepare believers who would share that with many, many generations down to us today. Father, we thank you that your truth is so clear and so simple. And we thank you for all those opportunities that we know of and the ones that we don't, that we have to share that simple truth for the purpose of making your joy full as all come to worship you and glorify you. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much. Amen.